Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about why our political institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. On this week's episode, we are working through America's love-hate relationship with political conflict. How much conflict does it take to break our institutions? Have we already reached that point? Or are the disagreements in our nation's capital merely the result of a legitimate opposition doing its job? How do we tell the difference between good conflict and bad conflict? These are some of the questions we are going to tackle in this episode. I'll be your host today, and my name is James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the School of Public Affairs at American University. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University and a blogger at the political science blog mischiefsoffaction.com. And I'm Lee Drutman. I'm a senior fellow at New America. So... It seems like no matter where you turn today, everyone's talking about conflict, whether it be substantive conflict over the issues, whether it be procedural conflict inside Congress, like filibusters, everywhere you turn, people are talking about conflict. Why? Why are they talking about it? I mean, I think the kind of straightforward answer is because that's that's the dominant framework we've got right now is this polarization idea, the idea that parties really dislike each other. And so this conflict is representative of something, something both negative and kind of counterproductive in, um, in American politics. I would also say, I just, I want to throw out the word impeachment. Maybe I'll just say it. Impeachment. Um, that's Ooh, obviously a controversial a, topic. Uh, obviously, a, a way that conflict is playing itself out that I, I think we're going to have a few things to say about today. Uh, yeah. So, but I mean, when is politics ever not about conflict, right? I mean, issues where we agree are not political issues. So, conflict is always about. Or, or politics is always about conflict. So, like, is now any different? I mean, I guess the the sense is that conflict has gotten worse and gotten more dangerous, and we have too much conflict. We should have more civility. Uh, but I, I mean, I think we need to 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 really really unpack uh, this. Quite, I guess that's what we're gonna do, right? We're gonna unpack. We're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna unpack. unpack. We're, we're gonna mix so a lot like, of metaphors. Like, I know, like, I know like, we're like gonna do that. Gift wrapped right now, and we have to. But <laughs> let's uh. Let's consider it within the context of Congress, too, because political conflict is a very nebulous or very uh, large topic, right? And it can encompass lots of different things. And let's just look at Congress. It's not working. Most people agree that it's not working. Working, Nothing's really happening there. Uh, the consensus, it seems to me, is that it's not working because there's too much conflict. You have these two parties, and they're either polarized, and they can't agree. There's no middle ground. Or all they're competing with one another to control the House and the Senate. And so therefore, they're unwilling to cooperate. And so this conflict makes it harder for them to negotiate and pass legislation, right? And the result is gridlock. So let's start with our baggage. What do you think about this question? Do we have enough? Or do we have too much? Maybe not enough? Lee? I think we have too much, but, it, but mostly because I think we have the wrong type of conflict. We have conflict uh, that's conflict just to win for the sake of winning versus productive disagreement to actually reach a settlement. And we have conflict to impose truth as opposed to conflict to find truth. That was brilliant. Yeah. Well, that's really, that's really yeah. deep. Um, we, I'm going to do, <laughs> right. do my best to try to 
follow that. So I tend to think that in some ways we don't have enough conflict because of something that I want to riff on something that Lee said earlier, which is the things that we don't have conflict over aren't political issues. And I spend a lot of time thinking about those issues. What are the issues that we, that haven't become major points of contention between different political actors? Um, and that those kinds of issues worry me a lot because I think in the past we've we've pushed off some of those issues in um, in order to ultimately to exclude and disenfranchise and leave people out of the political system. So I think a lot about that about that consensus and about the boundaries of. Um, of what we consider the American political consensus. But I will say, so when I say political actors, I also think a lot about politics and political conflict within parties. Um, and I think that that's, you know, political conflict within parties is fundamentally different than political conflict between parties. And that's a lot of what we're seeing right now and a lot of what the two of you are describing, which is that conflict has now become primarily between the two political parties who otherwise don't have a lot of incentive uh, necessarily to work together. When you have major political issues within a political party, that's not always, it's not to say that's always roses, but those actors do have strong incentives to to hammer out that conflict. And so I think that's a that's sort of my framework for thinking about how much political conflict we have in um, in this country. But my short answer, I will say, um, is I'm usually on the side of not enough, although I'm sympathetic to Lee that, that the type of conflict really matters and that the type we have right now isn't always terribly productive. I think I'm going to agree with both of you and, and disagree at the same time. I, the, the conflict we see is very passive aggressive, it strikes me. And so maybe it's the wrong kind of conflict. But I, I do agree with Julia that we need more conflict. We need more conflict in the in the right places. And if you just take Congress, for instance, I think it's broken because members of Congress see the conflict that occurs there as a natural thing that happens when people who disagree get together and make collective decisions. They see that as a bad thing that makes them harder for them to make those decisions. And so that's why you have the status quo persisting, despite the fact that you have millions of people from across the political spectrum and hailing from all walks of life who are frustrated with it and the gridlock that results. Isn't that remarkable? We have unified Democratic control. We have unified Republican control of government. Things change in elections, yet somehow everything stays the same and people are unhappy and the frustration persists. Well, I'm not sure everything stays the same. I think there have been some changes, but I think everybody's frustrated because the, the so in, there's there's substantive conflict and then there's symbolic and performative conflict, and so much of the conflict is performative in order to to rile up voters out in the country and get them engaged in politics and get them to vote. That's not to say there's not substantive conflict too, but the uh, the incentives are of our political system right now encourage a more performative conflict. Like neither side wants to find agreement because then what's their rationale for convincing uh, voters to support their side? And moreover, because so many of them are are worried about primary challengers and are, are members of, of their particular team, there's a lot of social pressure and, and constituent pressure on them to continue this performative fighting. So I Lee, let me ask you a question. Performative conflict in and of itself strikes me as not something that is is a negative. And if you think about, say, the civil rights movement, it was very much generated towards getting people 
out in the country to focus on an issue, to generate conflict in various ways around the country, to primary, to have new, to have new members come into Congress and to then challenge the system inside Congress as well to ultimately change the status quo. So it seems that it's the performative conflict detached from any kind of commitment to follow through and to act and have conflict within a place like, say, Congress or between Congress and the president. What's your feeling on that? Well, I mean, performative conflict, if it's can can certainly raise raise awareness of an issue. And I think expanding the scope of conflict is a is a classic tool of, of advocates and certainly what the folks in the civil rights movement were doing was trying to expand the sphere of conflict from not just something that was that was an issue only in the South, but something that the entire nation uh, cared about. But at, at a national level, there's no, it, it, when you have a, a zero-sum binary conflict, there's nowhere more to expand it to. So it just winds up being this escalating arms race of, of, of more and more aggressive political fighting. And then we get into the question of, of norm-breaking, of constitutional hardball, I mean, they're of changing the fundamental rules of politics, of losing a shared sense of fairness, of demonizing your enemy, and that's that's where democracy starts to feel really shaky and unstable. And that's that's the you know this is the fundamental argument of I think of the the, the Levitsky Ziblatt book Why Democracies Die, which is that when you you get to this point where where you have two sides that that don't tolerate each other anymore, uh, and two sides that are not willing that are willing to 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 go to the go to the extremes to to win political power. That's when democracy breaks down. So th- that's the too much conflict situation. But you know, again, I think it's th- that it's a conflict over procedure and and process more than it, and it's a conflict about winning than it is a conflict that we have a productive disagreement. Let's let's find a mutual solution. Uh, Julia, you and sorry, I, no, I'm jumping in here, but I want to ask you a question to tie what Lee just said to your first point about parties and conflict within parties. It seems like a lot of the frustration today that we see is because there's no movement on things like immigration, on things like guns, on things like spending healthcare. And it seems that that, as far as I can tell, is related to uh, conflict within parties and their inability to to kind of move in a concerted way on those issues. And this gets into one of our earlier episodes about parties. But do we have these two sides that are at loggerheads in a cohesive way on these substantive issues? I mean, I think that the two parties seeming um, seemingly cohesive issue positions, if you were to look at congressional voting or whatever, it looks like the two parties are really unified. I think that masks a lot of internal conflict. And specifically, I think you can take a particular you can take a position on an issue. Right. So you can say you're a Democrat. You're in favor of more government involvement in healthcare. You're a Republican. You're in favor of more restrictive immigration. But then to tie this back to what Lee was saying about substantive versus symbolic conflict, I think that's a really useful framework. The this the symbolism of taking those positions is straightforward and has pretty clear political implication and political payoff if you're saying those things to your your constituents. Um when you're trying to govern and you have to then go into the realm of substance and you have to say, all right, what does my position on immigration or what does my position on healthcare translate into as far as the details of policy? That's where I think you do see members of of the same party disagree in, in pretty specific ways. Um, and they don't have great 
great ways of resolving that. That's what I see is really is one of the the trickier things. Is is not so much that there's differences among among Democrats and Republicans within their own parties on these on the positions. It's that how does the position translate into action? Um, that's where things. That's where things break down. And I also think I want to pick up on this symbolic and substantive thing. And on your example, James, of the of the civil rights movement, because I think that is actually illustrative of something else. I think it's illustrative of the way that symbolic politics can get something on the political agenda and that that can eventually translate into legislation and movement in that regard. But then what that means for people's actual lives is is different. And so there's like there's um. This is book by two presidential scholars, uh, Sidney Milkus and Mark Landy. We'll put this in our show notes. It's called Presidential Greatness, and it talks a little bit about Lyndon Johnson and it, how he kind of got stuck in the in the '60s between a civil rights, a set of civil rights legislation that, on the one hand, so that it alienated the people everyone thought it was going to alienate, but on the other hand, legislation wasn't actually enough to really change society. And I think that's where a lot of the, the crux of our conflict is, is like you pass a bill and maybe it helps people in specific ways. But people are really in the mass electorate are really angry about these broader political conditions. And it's not obvious how like we don't have the political will necessarily to do something really drastic that would address their their concerns. So I think the symbolic and substantive challenges play out a lot on the output side as well as on the input side. Yeah. And can I, can, I, can I riff a little bit on this external or the conflict between parties versus the conflict within parties? Because I think we're at a, a unique moment in, in American political history now. The, I mean, the conflict between parties, uh, by all measures, has never been higher and that the parties have never been more distinct and, and non-overlapping from each other. Uh, and in an earlier era in which we got civil rights, it, it divided both the Republican and Democratic Party. Uh, and there were a lot of these cross-cutting cleavages within our party system. Uh, so that allowed for this sort of productive tension that there was conflict within parties and between parties, but, but they were essentially orthogonal to each other, they were on, on different dimensions. And now everything has collapsed in, into a single dimension so that the conflict in the Republican Party is uh, is between, you know, should we be, you know, a little bit more moderate Republicans or should we be like really hardcore fightingist Republicans? And similarly within the Democratic Party, it's should, you know, and we see this playing on the Democratic primary is, do you want somebody who's a little bit more moderate might make some compromises with Republicans or do you want somebody who's going to fight hard for a progressive agenda? But Joe Biden, who's the moderate Democrat, is, I mean, he has a very, by by historical standards, he, he's, he's, he's actually quite a liberal Democrat and has a very liberal uh, voting record. So I think that the, the situation that we're in now in which the, the 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 dissenting factions in both parties can't credibly claim to make a coalition with the dissenting faction in the other party because they're quite far apart on the issues and their various pressures uh, creates a situation within the parties where the party leaders want to hold the party together. So there's we've discussed this issue of, of, of agenda control that a lot of stuff doesn't get on the agenda because it would divide the party somewhat. Uh, and instead, the politics 
continues to focus on the issues that divide the parties from each other because the party leaders want to draw this distinction. So we have this this conflict, uh, th- whereas, whereas in an earlier era, we had conflicts that sometimes split the parties internally and sometimes split the parties from each other. Now, the conflict is managed in such a way that we only have the issues that split the parties from each other. And even on the issues that split the parties internally, there's not a second a second dimension that would allow for productive uh, overlap that you could come up with with new compromises uh, in a sort of log roll style. Right. But I think just to push back a little bit, and that I want to move on here in a little bit and talk about how this conflict, if it is too much, how it challenges our system that we have and the separation of powers, federalism, bicameralism, and all of that. But I, I think a lot about the antebellum Congress and the antebellum party's structure and the notion of slavery or the issue of slavery. And both parties were divided on slavery. Internally. Internally. Yeah. And so they tried to keep it off the agenda and they didn't talk about it. And whenever it was forced onto the agenda, they tried to compromise it away as quickly as possible. But eventually that proved unsustainable. Today, we have issues like immigration. And I'm not saying that immigration and healthcare and these others are the same as slavery, but I think in this sense they are. They divide the parties, but instead of not talking about them, the parties talk about them ad nauseum. It's like that's all they talk about, but yet they know, or at least they don't follow through, that they're not going to act. And the way that we make our decisions, because we see conflict as necess- a bad thing in the House and the Senate, per se, or between the Congress and the presidency, is we try to make decisions behind, we try to do it behind closed doors. And we try, and sometimes that's great. And some decisions are always going to be made behind closed doors. And sometimes you just have to get out there, turn on the lights, force people to try to to argue and see what happens. And in the end, somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. That's the great thing about voting. It always works out that way. I think that's, I think that's really astute. But I also think that the substance of the conflict matters a lot. And Although I think that's maybe the substance of all of these conflicts have similar implications, which is that once you've once you've managed to get something on the agenda and agree that it needs to change, then what do you like? What does that change look like? And who are the winners and losers? And what does the new structure of of society look like? And that's you know I think that that's that's particularly challenging when we're talking about. Um, I mean, to use the immigration example, I think that's that's particularly challenging. And to kind of caricature what I've seen from different actors, on the one hand, you know, I was reading an interview with um, with Julian Castro, who's talked about changing immigration policy and making it a, a civil offense to enter the country illegally as a way to address what's um, what's been going on at the border and and pull back on Trump's the Trump administration policies. And, but he, so he's getting pushback that's very symbolic about, you want to open the borders, you want this to be lawless. And so that becomes very difficult politics. I think on the other hand, when you start to see a disconnect um, that Republicans have started to see where, all right, you have, now we have this administration public policy that has family separations at the border. And so people symbolically, you see them saying things about how they want to protect the country from people coming in illegally or whatever but then on the other hand the images of children in these in these facilities are really unpopular and so people i think even within individuals or within sides people have a hard time reconciling their um sometimes their symbolic belief with the with the human consequences or having or have trouble um kind of the other way in the castro case 
Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. I thought we were supposed to debate, but actually, I find myself in there's a, there's a lot of agreement here. Quite disagree. But can I riff on on? But on, let's make it more specific. But yes, go on, ahead. Because I think on, it's easier to d- disagree when there's more something more concrete at stake. Yeah. Which is what I'm saying well, about politics, yes. right? <laughs> right? But 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 let's let's talk a little bit about anti because I want to actually echo another of Julia's points about what's what's kept off the agenda and the consequences of that. So, we had a party system from, you know, the 1830s through the 1850s known commonly as the second party system of the United States among nerds like us. Uh in which it was the Whigs versus the Democrats, and they were both national coalitions of of North and South. And so the, 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 the potential slavery divide split both parties internally. Now, in the 1850s, when uh, westward expansion and the Mexican War created higher stakes around the, the slavery question, because now it wasn't just just the South versus the North, it was who was going to control the West, and, and that that created that elevated the issue of slavery and then it became a a a, a fate of character of the nation question and, and it it elevated the moral dimension of of politics so in 1860 lincoln wins with only 39% of the vote in a in a four way race and southern states start seceding and over the court, and lincoln's first instinct is well you know the the important thing is we just want to put the union back together you know if if it means keeping slavery i'm okay with that you know Right. I mean, Lincoln, Lincoln is not passionately anti-slavery until until the end of the war when things just continue to escalate. So we have a we have a you know, we have a, a five year civil war over over this moral issue because we didn't address it earlier. I think there there I mean, you could argue about the history, but I think there might have been a, a time earlier on in which you could have had some sort of compensated emancipation. But as the issue elevated without resolution in this in this binary zero-sum way, a lot of Southerners who weren't slaveholders themselves became attached to the cause of the South and the importance of states' rights, and it became something much bigger, a character of the nation question. And immigration has, I mean, arguably, the, the fundamental dividing line between the two parties is this character of the nation question again. And although immigration divides the parties, both internally and separately, it's not that the, it's not that there's some clear middle ground position that both parties would 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 accept, right? It's 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 a very it's become a very zero sum issue. But the problem is, it seems to me, that we're not capable of identifying a middle ground position because the way we do that provokes conflict in Congress. It's a crucible of of, of conflict. And and so take immigration. Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, last summer, I believe, she was running for president at the time, uh, senator from New York. She stands up on the floor of the Senate. She gives a great speech in June or July of 2018 where she's she's banging her fist on the desk and she's saying darkness has descended. I mean, I take her at her word. I think she's sincere. And she's saying this is an inhumane policy. This is terrible if the administration won't act to stop the separation of women and their uh, children at the border, then we must act. Congress must act. And then at the end of this rousing speech, 
she says, co-sponsor this piece of legislation that I'm introducing with Diane Feinstein. And then she leaves the floor. And not once after that does she use any of the leverage that she has to put that issue on the agenda inside the Senate. She's not objecting to unanimous consent requests. She's not forcing amendments. She's not doing the kind of things that civil rights proponents did throughout the 1950s and early 1960s, both inside the Senate and outside. Jeff Merkley leaves the Senate. He has a press release and he says, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to the border. Right? I'm going to the border to solve this problem. Well, he's a senator. It seems to me the place you solve the problem is inside the Senate. Now, if you're going to the border to generate attention that you then leverage from the outside back on the inside to make it easier for you to win, that's different. And that's the linking between the performative and the substantive conflict, I think. But right now, and maybe you're right, Lee, it is, it's the performative con- conflict without the substantive conflict. Uh, that I see being the, the big problem. Because we can't solve immigration unless you have a process in, like inside of the Senate where people can, in the House, where they can argue and fight and debate. And ultimately, the compromise emerges out of that. And who knows what it will be. Well, I had two questions for you, Jim. Sorry to talk over, but I want to make sure I get this out. First, is is there a, is there a middle ground on these issues that I think Leah so astutely called the, the character of the nation? And the second one on your specific example about the Senate... Um, I I take your point about the behavior of the Democratic senators and kind of generating a lot of buzz and then not using it to leverage into political action. What I'm what I'm curious about is a kind of bigger picture of the this breakdown on the other side of the aisle, because it seems to me that, you know, obviously with civil rights that that there was this way of leveraging, to use your language, this, the notion of the character of the nation that brought together a bipartisan coalition. It's also clear to me that there are a lot of Republican critics of the administration's policy in this specific arena. But those those members don't seem to have the political incentives or the political will or who knows what it is. That's why I'm asking you um, to to join with Democrats on that on that issue. I think most broadly, the character of the nation is something that is is defined via a collective decision-making process. There's no other way. It's not like we look at a nominate table and we say, okay, here we all are. This is what it is, right? <laughs> you have votes. You, ha- you put people in, um, in difficult positions, as, as William Riker says and writes. You poke and push and prod the world until it agrees with you. It's an adverbial type process. That's the first thing. The second thing is I agree with you on the Republican critics of the administration. And this is what I mean. They don't Conflict, if there is an open and freewheeling process of, of more so than we have now in the Congress, they're going to be forced to take positions. And over time, the truth will will out, right? And either they will say, I'm going to not stand with the administration in these certain things because it's easier for me not to do so, or I will stand with the administration. And I think what's curious to me is on both sides, you see Democrats and Republicans unwilling to do that. It's a complete, Democrats can force these issues too. They do, especially in the Senate. We we talk about politics as if there's some mysterious force out there that's that's creeping around, that's pulling strings, when in reality, we all have agency right. and, we're, and no one's a victim, and in the Congress at least. And yet everybody's powerless. Right. And, it, and the only thing I can come back to is they think that conflict inside Congress is a bad thing, either if you're Kirsten Gillibrand because you want to be president. And if you divide your party, maybe that's not the best way to go about doing it, right? Because that too solves the problem, the president. But 
we see now the president, he ran on a lot of stuff relating to the border wall, relating to all kinds of different stuff. And then a single district court just, judge can issue a nationwide injunction, which Republicans once upon a time thought was unconstitutional. And he'll say, well, I can't do anything now. And it's like every no one has agency. Everyone's a victim. Well, you're foreshadowing our next episode on, on <laughs> judicial review. But, 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 but let uh, well, go ahead, Lee. Uh, can we fight about something? Um, uh, productive conflict. Uh, so I, I like your I like your your little Jeff Merkley vignette, which then raises question of so why 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 doesn't Jeff Merkley fight to get a vote on his bill? Why doesn't Kirsten Gillibrand fight to get a vote on on her bill? I mean, part of it maybe that that they know they're going to lose that vote. Uh, so, but. Part of it is that what they're trying to do is build a, build a moral case uh, that will excite voters and give them this always elusive majority in which they can enact the policy that they really want rather than than make a compromise. And this, this gets is us what I refer to as the waiting for Godot argument. <laughs> the waiting because we've for been, we've been building a moral case for these issues for decades uh, on both the sides. The waiting for the supermajority. But that's that 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 is what our political system that is the exciting thing that our political system seems to offer us this tantalizing thing that you can get unified control of government if you just fight hard enough, excite voters enough, disparage the other side enough, and then you can enact your preferred policy. So why settle for something that's a compromise when you can, when you think that you're on the side of uh, of right and you can keep building this movement? We, we talked about this in the last episode referencing Francis Lee's work on insecure majorities. Uh, and the, the flip side of losing your majority is, is wanting to, to to gain that majority. So, I, I mean, I think this is a function of of the way our political institutions are working at this particular moment. And they're creating one, we've created this divide over immigration, which really is this character of the nation issue. And, you know, if if we've if both sides have rallied their their core supporters to think this is an important more moral, you know, stakes of the nation thing, and then they say, well, and now we're going to you know, now we're going to compromise because this is what what we could get past. You know, but nobody's how trying do they, to how win. How do they go sell that? Well, because nobody thinks they can win because everybody thinks they're losing. So it, why is that? I think it's because we think about politics in a very static way. We no longer see it as a process. Look, there are no guarantees in politics. I mean, how long, how many decades elapsed between anti-lynching legislation, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65? How long did the uh, abolitionist movement have to fight just to get it on the agenda, much less than to ultimately prevail? A I lot. Mean, it, right. And it, so it, my point is, this is something that unfolds over time. And in a very Heideggerian sense, we are gridlocked now because we can't imagine the possibility of not being, because we think it has to happen all at once. And in reality, that the dynamic process reveals information. And this gets to the way our system was designed. And I think why it's broken and getting into our the constitutional structure. It's the illuminating nature of conflict that unfolds over time, that forces people to expend energy, that forces out information that others didn't otherwise have. And then you have these recurring elections that ultimately leads to justice and the general good. And it may take a while, but we get there. Well, but let's 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 go back to your boy William Riker. Um, and William Riker was, uh, you know, brilliant political scientist who 
whose I had this idea of the heresthetic, which is a, a terribly named thing, but that that by shifting the dimensionality of of political conflict to some other issue, you could build a winning coalition, even if you were losing on 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 one dimension. Or as Mike Tyson would say, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Well, you just changed the dimensionality on me. But no, it's um, the same. It's the same point. But go ahead. But right. So, uh, and and the idea is that by changing changing the framing of the issue, you can build a, a different winning coalition. Now. The problem with that today is everything is on one dimension. There's no second dimension. The civil rights, there was there was a second dimension to conflict in American politics, and that allowed cross-partisan coalition building. But now we've everything has collapsed to to a one-dimensional partisan conflict, and there's no space for that second dimension. So the whole idea of changing the the, the whole idea the whole idea of, of following William Riker's model of conflict or Chat Snyderian expansion of conflict falls apart. Uh, expansion of conflict is the idea that you want to uh, move to a broader venue. But if everything is is on this national two-party scale, there, there's nowhere to expand to. If everything has been absorbed into partisan conflict, there's no no new dimension to expand to. And that's why our politics are breaking down, I think. So I think that's right, but I guess I would add it. I'm a very biased observer because this is the the book I'm working on about weak parties. But it seems to me that the other the other element of that is multidimensionality isn't the only way that you can imagine two party conflict occurs. You can also you can also imagine that some of that conflict takes place elsewhere, and intra party politics is one way for that to happen. But if you have over the course of a century slowly disintegrated all of the the mechanisms to actually deal with intra party conflict, um, especially I mean, I'm very focused on presidential nominations. Then that's, um, you know, then then you're going to have no mechanisms for conflict other than this kind of symbolic public pressure that then has no no you know leverage at the at the end to produce anything. I think I think we actually all kind of agree on that, which is weird. I'm not sure. I agree, but okay. We'll see if it comes out in the proposal section. Um, so how do we fix this? Well, Julia, do you want to talk about? Party reforms. I mean, I always want to talk about. I always want to talk about party reforms. Um, although I think that my my sense is of this, which is not very satisfying, is that it's not so much that specific institutional reforms need to happen. I mean, I think that there's there are things to be said about empowering parties, particularly at the local level, to actually make make real decisions and move away from this model where we assume party decision-making needs to be open to everybody. I think there's something to be said for that. But I think that the other thing to be said for that is just is a more sort of norms, is more of a norms and informal practices based argument that we need to kind of change the the culture within parties to accept that whatever process there is that is going to produce a, a legitimate outcome. Um, the Kind of going along with that, when I'm when I'm looking at this, I think that one of the things that needs to change is the is the kind of personality and candidate focused politics that have come out of the last fifty years or so. 
Um, and that, again, is more of like a kind of norm and cultural and informal shift than a re reform per se. But that's where I think, you know, some of how we talk about conflict has been rooted up in, well, if we just find the right person who can unify everybody, if we just find the right person who can bring together everyone in a party, can bring together the nation, you know, this is a problem of personnel. And it's not. There's not going to be a person who can give a speech that's going to unify the country. There need to be lots of people representing their constituents in a in a reasonable way. So that's the that's my read on it, but it's not that doesn't make for like a nice white paper. Like change change American political culture. Go. So we're we're trying the 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 problem is is that we're 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 seeking unity where there's underlying diversity. Right. And so how do you harness that diversity in the inevitable conflict that results in our institutions, Congress, the presidency and make it and productive? I, I well, make politics multidimensional again. Right, like bring back. It's not going to fit on a hat. <sighs> well, <laughs> small font. Nobody will be able to read it. Yeah. But isn't it? But is the way that it's it's already multidimensional? Uh, we just need people who want to win. No, it's not multidimensional. We need. Uh, we, what's the second dimension? Well, it's not. It's, it's dimensions. I mean, it's like four rooms in a wall, in a ceiling, and a thermostat. And you have people who run on things. They get there. They should try to win. That's the yeah, point. That's, and when uh, they win, they provoke divisions both within their parties and between their but, parties. But all the divisions are are on the single partisan dimension. What what issue is orthogonal to party conflict now? So far as I can tell, whenever Republicans and Democrats act inside Congress, especially in the Senate, they are revealed that they agree on a whole lot of stuff. And when when I worked in the Senate, we one of the last bills that I worked on was the uh, USA Freedom Act. We reauthorized the Patriot Act. And I was working with uh, Senators Mike Lee and Rand Paul and Pat Leahy and Ron Wyden, and we were working against um, we were working against uh, Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell. And if it's foreign policy, you have something that cuts across both sides. Right now, the president's uh, policy on Syria and Afghanistan seems to me to be Obama's policy on Syria and Afghanistan. Uh, trade is something that cuts across both issues where you have like a David Vitter and a Sherrod Brown who will agree or on financial issues. You have Jim DeMint and Bernie Sanders both voting to audit the Fed. Uh, immigration, you have, yes, it seems like it's unified, but Jeff Sessions and Pat Toomey do not agree on immigration policy. They don't. So it's sort of a. I mean, what what you're what you're describing is kind of an outsider insider dimension. What I'm just describing yeah. is that outsiders eventually become insiders when they go to the Congress to try to win, but that provokes conflict now, and they see that as a bad thing for whatever reason, and so we don't have that. So so the question is, how do you how do you get that? So can you get that within our existing electoral system? Or uh, I mean, my 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 belief is you need to blow up our electoral system, blow up the two-party system. And because in a multi, the more parties you have, the more dimensions you have. And that when we when we had more dimensions, what we what we really had was a four-party system within our two-party system. We had liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats alongside liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans. And when that four-party system collapsed into a two-party system, politics became one-dimensional. But when you had a, a four-party system, you had three dimensions in politics because the, the, the rule of, of dimensionality is number of parties minus one. So if you want more dimensions, if you want to make politics multidimensional, you just need to have more parties. And then parties can actually decide because they're smaller tents and they can actually ha have enough unity within them that they can actually make decisions rather than having to try to please all the people all the time and wind up pleasing nobody. Everybody should buy Lee's book when it comes out. Correct. Yes. Uh, I'm... Everybody. 
Everybody. That means you. And the book is called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America, available on fine websites everywhere. What do you think, Julia? Uh, what how are, how are we going to fix this problem? How are we going to fix the I problem? Mean, you, how are we so, going to fix it and say Congress? I know you have some ideas about the presidency and, yeah. and the nominations process that you've mentioned. Yeah, I mean, that was that's sort of my my set of proposals is essentially that we need to accept the the possibility of compromise and to have I, I, I really think it's sort of a cultural shift. But here's I'm going to instead of having a proposal, I'm going to obnoxiously quote a blog post that I wrote this week, which is, I think the real challenge here is is figuring out in a political system, you're always going to have to have compromise. And I think you're always going to also have to have some boundaries around what's what's acceptable and what you think, like, if we're fighting about the character of the nation in a collective process, what what you cannot compromise on. And I think that that accepting that is more important than any particular institutional reform. Like, I don't think we're going to get through this, this problem. Sorry, Lee, with multi parties that might fix certain things, but I don't think it would actually get at the root of the nature of, of American political conflict, which is that we're, we're still in a lot of ways, a new multi-ethnic democracy. And I think that's a, a good point. And let me ask you a question, a very meta question, and we're going to move on to our, our final s- segment here. We're running short on time, but it's a very meta question, Julia. But is not the way in which we decide what conflict or what things are out of bounds and in bounds itself decided in our society by a process that is conflictual? Is there no other? It's not like we have some person who can come in and say, okay, this is what we're going to do now. That's the the very essence of it. We, I mean, what deciding what is good conflict and what is bad conflict, it seems to me, is something that can only be done via a contested process. No, I think that that's right, and I think part of the reason why this why this has come up so much recently, and here, you know, I want to make reference to some some things that I uh, I talked about in this blog post in Mischiefs of Faction that I wrote. Um, a couple of days ago, it the so we had this big conflict over you know should should Ellen DeGeneres uh, talk up her friendship with George W. Bush and that was uh, you know that de- seemed to divide a lot of people um, and also this question about chanting at Trump at a World Series game and you know what what was you know what are the implications of that um, and my I don't have an answer to that but I think one of the things going on is that the people who have the capacity now to weigh in on that conflict because of changes in media but also because of changes in society where we have a lot more diverse voices in any given high profile conversation like that has changed a lot and that I think is why we're why we're now having so many of these conflicts is because you've got a lot of different people weighing in on where the kind of where the moral lines are. So I don't know if that answers your question, but well, that's what I have to say. Well, on the meta question, and, and this is a, a profound question, which is like, thank you. Uh, you need to have some agreement on what the rules are. How do you decide that agreement? And that agreement has been decided long ago, right? I mean, it was decided, uh, we're playing by the rules that, that were set in the past, and we can change those rules. Now, the problem is, is there has to be a fine balance, right? I mean, a system that can't change the rules to update itself to to deal with changing conflicts or or unfairnesses that creep in over time, systematic biases uh, is a is a system that's ossified and rigid and ultimately fragile and will break. So norms have to evolve. 
But if norms evolve and rules evolve and change too quickly and seem like they they unfairly benefit one side over the other, uh, then the system also breaks down because there's no shared sense of fairness. And this is why getting the rules right is really important because the rules have to leave enough play for everybody to feel like they can they can win under these rules. Now, I think one of the problems that's that's happening in American politics is is that both sides feel like they can't win under the existing rules for different reasons and feel like they have to change the rules. And so nothing seems legitimate. And that raises the stakes. It seems like the other side is cheating. Then, well, then our side should cheat too. And that's that's how democracy breaks down. And I, I believe that that is exacerbated by the binary two-party condition of our politics, that in a, in a binary zero-sum conflict, if... If if I win, you lose. If you lose, I win. But you open the party system up, and you br- break that that binary conflict, and it's not clear who the winners or the losers are on any given rule change. So let's do last words here because I think we're we're long on time. But what do you think? I mean, has anyone changed their mind? Has anyone had their thinking shifted or altered? Does anyone agree with me? Does anyone? Do My I mind has me? been I blown. I, I don't even know. I mean, I've been, I think between the, the two of you, your discussion about dimensionality, I've been kind of um, inspired to reopen that question because on the one hand, I think Lee is onto something that that's, that's an important place to look to think about how we deal with conflict. But I also kind of agree with James that there's more dimensionality to American politics when you look under the hood than might be uh, might seem like at first glance. So that's where I will be um, probably lecturing my students about this next week, uh, going rogue off the syllabus. Lee? Well, yeah, there there is more dimensionality under the surface, but it's it's not doesn't have a forum to express itself in our party system. I, mean, I think I think Julia's points about the disagreement between versus within the parties and 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 there was this different forum for conflict has 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 given me a lot of food for thought. And I'll I'll just close by saying wonderful discussion. And Lee, your last point about the rules and how both sides see them, it, I think it aligns with how I think about uh, the problem in our system today, which is we used to think about it as uh, government as a form of government, as an activity that takes place within a form, within a venue, in a place, and that activity. It generates conflict and it leads to outcomes versus now we see it as progress towards the promised land. And, and all of a sudden, it's a means to an end. And when it's a means to an end, conflict gets in trouble. Conflict's a bad thing and, and, it, and, and, and you don't like it. And so you depart from the rules because when they don't serve your ends and you, and you go with the rules when they do. And I think in that sense, yes, the, the conflict may be too bad. So it may be even more meta than what well, we've been talking about. Conflict has become conflict about the fundamental rules of democracy because that's, that's where we are. Well, and on that, thank you for listening. All right. Hi, everybody. I am Elena Soros. I produce this podcast, and we are introducing a new segment here on Politics in Question. We're doing Two Truths and a Lie. So everybody here knows a lot about these topics, and so I'm going to try and stump them with two truths and a lie. Follow-up questions are not allowed. I'm going to read three cases of things that may or may not have happened in American politics, and you will tell me which one you think is the lie. So in this episode, we talked about whether conflict in our, par- in our politics are helpful or if they are an obstacle to governance. So 
I'm going to tell you three stories of uncivil things that have happened on the floor of Congress, and you have to tell me which one is the lie. Story A. After weeks of vitriolic back and forth between two senators over a bill, tensions were high between the two politicians. In response, one senator decided to filibuster by reading his political rival's personal papers and diaries out loud, which his aide paid the other senator's housemaid to steal. Story B. When a disagreement broke out on the House floor, one representative spit tobacco juice at another. Two weeks later, the representative who was spit at attacked his colleague with his cane on the House floor. The other representative fought back with fire tongs, and they were eventually pulled apart. Story C. In preparation for a long filibuster, one senator was worried about how he would go to the bathroom. He and his aides eventually found a solution in case things got dire. An aide would hold a bucket in the Senate cloakroom so that the senator could go to the bathroom while still keeping one foot on the Senate floor. Which one is the lie and which ones are our truths? Oh, my. Wow. Oh, my. The the moral is don't spit tobacco juice on, on, on people. Right. Well, that one is true. The, right. the caning one. Right. The caning I mean, story. Yeah. If someone spit tobacco juice on you, Julia, would you fight back with some fire tongs? Oh, uh, maybe. Uh, yeah. I mean, probably. I don't carry fire tongs around with me. I have there. to fight back with yeah, well, knitting needles and a textbook. But Times uh, may demand it. <laughs> Okay. Right. Yeah, I'm gonna think about it now. Yeah. You... Um, I really want A to be true. I, I think A is the lie. I I think I think so too, but I really want it to be true. That's the situation for me. I never Maybe had to would... hold a bucket when I worked in the Senate, so. Well, no, well, but, now but nobody sounds... actually has to 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 filibuster That's true. That's right. unless they want to for for their own political so... career. Ted Cruz. Right. Right. Bernie Sanders. Which there are stories about like how people deal with the. You know the bathroom issue, right? Dehydrating themselves and such, right? Then it's hard to speak for a long time. Well, so this is why they're senators and we're not. You get it just from being there. It's All right, so I, I, I think A is the lie. I don't know. So just to confirm, none of you are certain about which ones are true. I, if, I guess if, we're there's not. nothing that you're like this one absolutely is true. I know this case. I mean, B describes the the Charles Sumner right. team name. But I don't know the details. It de- does not. It does not. I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't that know was, the details around Preston the Sumner. That was Preston Brooks Kenny. and Sumner, and he was in the Senate. <laughs> Preston, or, but maybe there were no fire tongs involved. I, I don't I don't remember there being fire tongs involved. It could be B, actually. I think A. I mean, what, that's a lot. How are you going to get all those? Well, now I'm just going to vote for C to be contrarian. Well, I don't know. I'm starting to think of that B might actually be be the be the one because it's like it's not it's like almost like a story but I, I don't i don't know the tobacco juice and the and the fire tongs yeah. part and i feel like i i feel like that would have been part of the story that i knew i know that the that canine. seems justified it's so i'm gonna go with b okay b i'm going with a i'm going with c all right the lie was a so there have actually initial instinct there have been multiple canings on the floor of the lots house. of canings um i'll tell you guys really quick the ones that are true, why they're true. Yeah, I want to hear about the pee bucket. I mean, so that was a uh, that was Strom Thurmond when oh, he God. did his twenty four hour filibuster of the nineteen fifty seven civil rights bill. Uh, he also decided to go to the Senate steam room for every, every day for a couple of days before because he wanted to try to make sure his body would absorb liquid better. Um, was his logic unclear whether or not they actually had. To use the bucket, I think he did get a break. Is there science behind that? I don't know if there was what the actual science is. We'll have to call someone else for that. But uh, the caning example, there is that other one where there's um, 
there's two histories that I know of of caning on the House floor, but um, this was in 1978. Representative Roger Griswold of Connecticut got in a fight with Representative Matthew Lyon of Vermont. Lyon spit on Griswold, and then Griswold attacked him two weeks later. They were fighting over the diplomatic stance to France. Mm. Wow. The more you know. The more you know. Big issues. Yeah. All right. Thanks for playing, everybody. Thank you. Until next time. All right. Trust my gut. That's that's what (laughs) I learned. See, that was back when things mattered. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.